It takes more than great code to be a great engineer. This is Soft Skills Engineering, episode 67. I'm your host, Dave Smith. I'm your host, Jameson Dance. Soft Skills Engineering is a weekly advice show for software developers and emus. (laughs) Are you going to add more animals every week? Mm -hmm. Will the intro just get longer and longer (laughs) as you expand the scope of the podcast? (laughs) Eventually, the whole animal kingdom will be invited. One species at a time. Yeah, one species at a time. It will turn into a podcast about um, helping software developers with soft skills and also educating people about all the different kinds of animals there are. That's right. By simply naming them and nothing else. Uh, Yeah. I mean, if you name something, you have power over it. I learned that from <laughs> fantasy novels. <laughs> Speaking of that, I have named a conference called React Rally. <laughs> I co-organize a conference called React Rally, and I'm going to use this podcast for selfish purposes use to it. sell tickets. Conference is August 25th through the 26th in Salt Lake City. It's a single track conference about a JavaScript framework called React. If you don't know what it is, I would love for you to come, but probably you're not going to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but if you already know what it is, then you should be super excited because we have fantastic speakers um, it's, it's a really chill atmosphere. So the parties are like, we play lawn games at, at night with friends kind of, I don't know. It's, it's, I, I love it. And other people who have no motivation to lie to me, tell me they love it also. Um, so if you're interested, you can buy tickets at reactrally.com. Also, we uh, should be out by the time this comes out. We'll be doing a diversity scholarship this year. So we'll be giving out a bunch of tickets Um, to locals in Utah, and then also paying for a small number of people to fly in and attend the conference from wherever they live. So if you're interested in that, you can find the diversity scholarship application on reactrally.com as well. Hope to see you there. I should read the first question though. All right. Hi, Dave and Jameson. Lately, I've been thinking about going back to school for a master's in computer science. On the one hand, I think it would be interesting and potentially help me get my foot in the door of some more specialized fields. But on the other hand, I don't know if the cost and time commitment is worth it for the possible career opportunities. In what situations is going back to school for an MSCS worth it? And that was from listener named Maria. Thanks for the question. As someone with not a bachelor's in computer science, I feel perfectly qualified to answer this question (laughs) (laughs) hey did you ever finish it uh no no i'm still i'm still chugging along are you how are you how's it going uh i was stymied by i i got halfway through my first course and then you have to take a test and their ui Mm -hmm. for how you like schedule to take it is broken and then i just i don't know that was enough to throw me off so (laughs) real committed Okay, I just well. have to call someone and tell them that it doesn't work, and then they tell me how dumb I am. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> did you click, try clicking the start button? <laughs> yeah, a couple of times. So uh, no, no bachelor's degree from Jameson, but would you go back for a master's? <laughs> <laughs> if I were independently wealthy, yes. Okay. Because I think computer science is fascinating. And in a master's, you just get to dive a little bit more into to the fascinating parts of it. Um, and you become a little bit more of an expert. It's not a PhD, so you're not like the world expert on the topic that you pick. But, but if you're super into databases or programming languages or machine learning or whatever, you, you get to read a bunch of papers and, and understand that at a level that most people don't, which is cool. 
in an academic sense um, and could be fulfilling and stimulating. And I don't think I could not have a job for the years it would take to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So it'd be like a really long, expensive vacation. Yeah. Like an intellectual vacation. I don't think it would help me in a career in any sense. But what if you got really, really good at automata theory? You'd be unstoppable. (laughs) I could get in really, really esoteric arguments. And win every time. (laughs) No, I would get crushed because there's always someone better at automata theory than you. Oh, yeah, that's true. You better go with symbolic computation instead. Yeah, I don't know. You'll just care a lot more and more about a smaller and smaller chunk of the world yeah <laughs> scope decreases while caring increases like and the, weird i think the pettiness chart. increases too oh yeah it's easier to get insulted and insult other people this is a little tongue-in-cheek but i think it reflects how i feel they they're intellectually interesting in a career in software development i i don't believe that they're generally useful i think there are probably exceptions to that and especially if you get something fancy like machine learning or artificial intelligence or whatever, you could probably go be like a talented grunt at an AI company, but you couldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't be like, they wouldn't just hire you at Tesla to run their automated car division or whatever, you know? No, that I mean, if you wanted to get a PhD and then you could be talking about real specialization, right? Yep. I mean, a master's degree is... You'll specialize a little bit, but you will not get nearly the level of depth. Uh, Not to mention, I don't think a master's degree opens a lot more doors to you um, that aren't already open to you as an experienced software developer with a bachelor's degree in computer science. That's That's just my gut feel on it. That's how I feel too, that the PhD does but that neither of those are really financial. It's more like you can do things that you wouldn't right. get hired on to do as a software engineer with a bachelor's. Right, right. And, and the PhD, actually, it opens new doors, but I think it also closes a whole bunch of other doors. Like, your oh, yeah. Entry-level software development positions are just totally off the table for you. Yeah. Um, not, not totally, but most of the time, they'll see the PhD and be like, whoa, 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 what are you doing here? You're overqualified. Yeah. Now, I, I, do, have, uh, I do have a good friend who's doing an online master's program part-time, I don't actually know why he's doing it. I should probably ask him. But I think it's it's mostly for intellectual curiosity. He's just very interested in stuff and motivated to learn mm-hmm. it, but also loves the structure that that um, a program like this provides. Mm-hmm. I don't know that he has long-term career goals around it. I think it is just like, this will be cool. This is what I'll do instead of like read blog posts at home about mm-hmm. stuff. <laughs> I'll read the syllabus and textbooks. Yep. I had a friend who did that as well during evening and lunchtime hours and mostly with online courses. I think over over the course of either five years or seven years, he got his master's degree in computer science. He bounced between two or three different universities trying to find one that would match up with his schedule. Um, And he finally did get it. And uh, he's one of my good friends. And on the day he got his master's degree diploma, he brought it into work and also brought in a cake that said, his name was Evan. It said Master Evan, I think, on the cake. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> he was super proud of himself. And uh, he insisted from that point forward that everybody call him Master. So, I mean, with that alone, it might be worth it. Yeah, that is, uh, you can't put a price on the title. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think if you're looking in terms of raw um, opportunity and financial cost, though, it's it's 
almost always not worth it. Mm, yeah. Now, in, in, in Evan's case, his employer paid his tuition. So the only cost he paid was his time. Okay. And he was also like your friend who just loved, I mean, he just totally geeked out. He focused on programming languages and compiler design and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Super excited for that. So it was like he was going to spend his time studying this anyway. Mm -hmm. And so now he got to do it at a more rigorous level. And he got a piece of paper that says he's a master. So I worked, the, the first thing that ever paid me money to program was the uh the university computer science department i worked there as a webmaster when i was going to school and that meant i got to hang out with the professors and with the grad students oh and, and you were, had master in your title oh uh, that's that's true as yeah. an undergrad <laughs> didn't even need <laughs> that fancy piece of paper and i loved them they were super cool and it was fun to hang out with them and it made me realize that Boy, did I never want to go to grad school. <laughs> uh, one one tip, though, that I got from the professors was if you want a master's, try and get into a Ph.D. program because you normally get a master's as part of your Ph.D. studies. And then you just drop out after you get your master's. Later, nerds. <laughs> <laughs> I think oh, I should I should confirm this, but I'm going to say it on air anyways, but I believe that most PhD programs um, in technical fields will pay you a stipend and pay your tuition. So you don't end up having to pay uh, the, the tuition costs hmm. and you even get a little tiny chunk of money. Um, so it can be easier financially to do that. You're still doing, I mean, the opportunity cost of not working as a software developer is, is will, will dwarf the amount <laughs> yeah. of money that you get. <laughs> yeah. But could be a, it could be an okay deal yeah right take a little edge off i uh, yeah I'm, i have pretty mixed feelings about this uh, for a lot of years i think if you had asked me should i get a master's degree i would have said look if it's your hobby go for it you know there's much worse hobbies than cs master's degrees but if you're looking for career advancement it's probably not worth it then I moved to the Boston area and I ride my bike through the campus of Harvard every day on my way to work and my office is across the street from MIT. And I got to tell you that getting a master's degree from one of those universities in computer science will probably open doors that uh, are just incredible and would not be opened any other way if, no, if for no other reason through the social connections that you'll make. Um, so that's pretty valuable. On the other hand, those are really expensive master's degrees to get. Yep. So there's a little financial trade-off for you. Uh, expensive to get and also really hard to get into. <laughs> right, right. Um, I, I would say that most people on earth in computing, or most people on earth that write software could not get into MIT or Harvard or Stanford or those big name CS schools. You mean you don't just like, you don't just walk up to the cash register and say, I'd like one master's degree, please. <laughs> Here's $200,000, and then they hand it to you. <laughs> no. I mean, that that's a special case that if you if you could get into those places, then I think the rules change a little bit. But most people can't. So Yeah, that's true. That's true. And most people that can can't afford it anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but so maybe that doesn't even matter. So I had another friend who got a master's degree. This was, oh, geez, seven, eight years ago. Um, he had been working for about maybe five, six, seven years as a software developer. And then he went back and got a master's degree. And I don't really think it made any difference to him whatsoever professionally. And when I asked him about it, 
and I asked him what his motivations were. He said he wanted it for career purposes, like he wanted to make more money and have a better job. Frankly, I don't think it has paid off at all for him. Um, I don't. I actually haven't asked him how much he's making. Maybe maybe he's making a grundle of money, and I <laughs> and I don't know. But um, based on the jobs that he's had since then, and the jobs that I've had since based then, based on the uh, stuff you find in his garbage can <laughs> from going through his mail, <laughs> I don't think I I don't think it's really paid significant dividends in in terms of career advancement. Yeah. I mean, this is different for other fields too. I know in education, especially a master's is sort of becoming table stakes almost to advance your career as, as a teacher. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's, it's super different, but as a software yeah. developer, it's a great passion project. If you can make it work financially, it's not a great career investment for most people, especially given the opportunity cost. Now in the question, Maria says, um, it could help me get my foot in the door for more specialized fields. And that may very well be true in some of these newfangled AI and machine learning projects. And like you mentioned before, you're, you're probably not going to get to be head of Tesla's self-driving car division. But I think there are a lot of positions where you would get your foot in the door with a master's degree having an emphasis in machine learning or statistics or something else where otherwise you might not uh, be allowed yeah. to walk through that door. Maybe, so, maybe like bioinformatics, like you know, something like that. Yeah, I feel like I've heard that the PhD is really the thing you need for those oh. those specialized fields. Even I have seen, I have heard and seen that firsthand. Um, we hired three, four different uh, data scientists at my last job. All three of them had PhDs or PhD equivalents. You know, where it's like they did all, like ninety five percent of the work and then dropped out, like like yeah. a certain other co-host that I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, but I still think that with a master's degree, with an emphasis in one of those areas, it, it should, I don't have data behind this, but it should open doors that are yeah. pretty much closed if you have a bachelor's degree. Well, you have to get a master's to get a PhD usually, so. Yeah, so try it. <laughs> get the master's, <laughs> see if you can get the, do- the jobs. And then if you can't, go back and finish that PhD. Yeah. Oh, man, there were... There are people there that had been in the PhD program for a decade or more. Oh, oh, oh! <laughs> it's they must really like it. <laughs> I I think if they really liked it, they would have finished faster. <laughs> well, what what was taking them so long? I don't know. It's both an enormous amount of work and also incredibly self-directed and open-ended. And there's lots mm-hmm. of room for you to work really hard and get totally stuck and backtrack and throw a bunch of work away. And there's lots of room for you to kind of just spin your wheels because there aren't very many um, hard deliverables or things enforced upon mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. So, so I think... You're... So so that's interesting because a lot of people say they want to go back to college because they're not good at self-directed learning and that the college curriculum would force them to stay on track. Yeah, that's but you're that's saying for maybe it wouldn't. <laughs> no, not not for PhDs for sure. I know okay. um, for masters there's some curriculum, uh, but yeah, the 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 more you do, the less direction there is. Okay, which could be really hard for some people. It's it's weird because yeah. people that get into PhD programs are, are generally very smart and academically talented. Sure, but some of them just get trapped. Mm-hmm. Have we answered the question? 
Yeah, I think so. Bottom line for me is financially, the difference between a bachelor's degree and a master's degree is probably unmeasurable. It's so small um, for most people. And But uh, from a personal satisfaction standpoint, I think there are people who just love this and they feel like their life is more complete having gone through that process. And I can't argue with that one bit. And I'd say go for it if that's you. Yeah. You, you mentioned the financial benefit and as, as someone who's reviewed a lot of resumes, I've looked at resumes of people applying for general software developer positions who have masters and it in no way at all affected my review of their application mm-hmm. positively or negatively. It was just like pure neutrality. Like, oh, they did a master's. That's <laughs> cool. But they're also into mountain biking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Which which I feel really bad for saying because it's years of their life <laughs> of their life. Yep. <laughs> but it just uh, it just doesn't have a lot to do with writing writing web apps, you know? Well that's true. All right. <laughs> so go for it. Absolutely do it. Don't let anything get in your way. There's no cost too high. (laughs) (laughs) I feel conflicted about my response on this question because I love learning stuff. And and I love the feeling of just diving in and studying things. And sometimes I'll wake up and have questions that would take years of work to answer. And Mm -hmm. I wonder, what would it be like to have that be my job where I just have this question and I'm trying to find the answer? And, And that's part of the research part of the master's program. But I feel like I've come down really hard against it. I certainly don't think that those answers to questions will make me any money though. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's more like intellectual curiosity and stimulation. And if that's the motivation, then for sure. Yep. And if not, then we've we've covered it. It's a I solid have, maybe. I think you and I have like a perfect agreement, total harmony on this subject. Good. So if you disagree, dear listener, please write in and let us know what yep. your opinion is, and we will read it out Especially loud. Especially if you have experience. If you did a master's and it was great, or you did a PhD or whatever, if, if you've done it, because, I mean, Dave and I haven't done it, right? We have no idea <laughs> for sure. We're just making stuff up. So please let us know. Oh, um, one, more, one more thing I want to say about this, uh, and then we'll wrap up. When I was uh, an undergrad student getting my computer science bachelor's degree, Every virtually every CS class, every semester, the teacher would dedicate one class period to trying to convince us to go on to get a master's degree. Um, did you have a similar experience, Jameson, in your college? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And they would throw out some very interesting statistics, such as the difference in earnings over a lifetime between a bachelor's degree holder and a master's degree holder was some number, like a million dollars or something. Um, and, and they would give all these like opening salaries are X percent higher and, and this and that. Um, I, I believe in my heart that those figures were all, uh, I don't want to say fake news. (laughs) 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 They were, um, construed to, uh, paint a better picture than is reality for, most people now granted these numbers are 15 years ago and the industry has changed a lot since then um but i believe that they were mistaken in their predictions yeah so there you go in other words you will hear people convince you quite strongly of this professors are um a very biased source for information about whether you should go on to grad school or not because they they have made it they're the pinnacle of academia 
Mm-hmm. Is it like 0.01% of graduating PhDs end up as professors or something like that? I Whoa. It's an extraordinarily low? small number. Oh, I, I would have thought much higher than that. Um, I think that's tenured professors. Uh, okay. Okay. You know what? I'm going to Google that. I'm sitting at a computer and I want to say the real number. Because to me, it seems like most CS PhDs that I know, the only thing they're really, really qualified to do is teach CS classes. In, at the college level and do research, CS research. Like very few companies employ significant numbers of PhD CS students or graduates. Well, it depends on whether I want the numbers to agree with me or not. Oh, perfect. <laughs> That's my favorite kind. <laughs> <laughs> the choice is yours. Success rate 3% says one Google headline. Hmm. I like those odds. Okay, that's higher than 0.01. That's yeah, not tenure <laughs> track. That's any kind of professor. And, and there's the whole adjunct thing that's becoming mm-hmm. a bigger deal. So anyways, and the, the CS chances industry are vanishingly is, sure. small that you will end yeah. up like the people who are telling you, for sure go on to grad school. I did it and it was great. Also, they make all of their salary based on people paying tuition for education. That's so. true. <laughs> <laughs> Small conflict of interest. Yeah, you, you're kind of, I mean, grad students are a resource that professors mine to produce papers in some ways. So. <laughs> and they, they okay. the trade-off is they help you, but you know, whatever. Yeah. New question. <laughs> All right. Question answered. <laughs> question question answered. Do you want to read the next question, Dave? Sure. This one uh, is from an anonymous listener who says, I often ask technical questions and either get one-word answers that I don't understand or giant explanations of things I already understand. How do I ask good technical questions to get the answers that I need? Hmm. I don't know, Jameson. How do you ask good questions? (laughs) Uh, Is that the Socratic method? You just ask questions when people ask you questions? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know, Jameson. Is it? Is that what you want it to be? I don't know. I did computer science, not what? humanities. So there are large <laughs> gaps in my lo- knowledge about the world. <laughs> Should I spend the rest of this episode only asking questions? What would happen if you did that? What do you think would happen? How many listeners would never listen to the podcast again? How many do we have again? (laughs) (laughs) How many can we afford to lose? (laughs) How bad would you feel? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I can't take it anymore. (laughs) This is a great question. Um, Mm -hmm. I've experienced both ends of this question as both the question asker getting unsatisfactory answers and a question answerer who just feels like I'm saying words and they're not they're not doing it. They're not doing anything. Yeah, they're just deflecting off the surface, to quote Star Wars Episode Four. Uh, yeah. I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, so one problem can be that um, you get a lot of detail, some of which is meaningless to you or some of which you already know. Mm-hmm. And that problem can be solved by giving more detail in your question. I... I f- feel like I learned how to ask really good technical questions partially from Stack Overflow. Um, back in the day, I spent a lot of time on Stack Overflow and I still have like Stack Overflow karma interest. I have all these questions that I answered and asked years and years ago and they still get upvotes. So 
Oh wow! Uh, I'm I'm just I've retired actually, and I'm living off the interest from my Stack Overflow <laughs> karma. So you you asked questions that were people thought were good, so they voted them up. Yep, and I also gave answers that people thought were good, so they voted them up, and it still happens all the time. From I asked some question about like .NET in the 2010 because I needed it for a class or something, and and people still upvote it now. <laughs> um, wow. Anyways, the culture of asking questions on Stack Overflow encourages a lot of detail about why you're asking the question and what mm -hmm. exactly the question is and code samples of what you tried and like the error message that you got back. And it's not like um, people will yell at you if the question isn't, isn't detailed enough, they just won't answer it or they'll answer yeah. it wrong and you won't yeah. get the information you need. So there are strong incentives to give a lot of detail in your question, which oh my can gosh. help the answerer. The, the worst question ever. Hey Dave, why isn't this working? And it's like, why isn't what working? <laughs> that that program you wrote, what's it doing? It's not working. <laughs> what? <laughs> can you show me the error message? Oh yeah, it said error. I'm like, no, <laughs> I can't yeah. help you. I cannot help you unless you give me all the information. I haven't seen your screen. I don't know what you're seeing. So yeah, give all the details. Sometimes, yeah. you know, sometimes it helps to, I was going to say you can, there's a risk of flooding the person with too much detail, but usually that's better than not providing enough. Yeah. I mentioned Stack Overflow. There's also a good example in open source culture. A lot of popular open source projects will have issue templates or they'll have examples of good bug reports or, or questions people have asked in their issue trackers. Um, and, and the ones that get answered are usually the ones that are asked well. It's not necessarily the most important mm -hmm. or most broken bugs or whatever. It's, it's what makes it easiest for, for the person that knows it to give the answer. Yeah. So this is a valuable skill because it will help you get answers. Uh, Absolutely. Quickly. Absolutely. And correct answers that will actually solve your problem. And sometimes the answer to your question is not actually the answer that you, to the question you asked, but some, some assumption that you've made that is incorrect. And if you give enough background information, you can get a much more valuable answer to a question that you didn't even know you should ask. Um, so a great example of this, or the, the pattern that this follows is called the XY problem. Have you ever heard of the XY problem, Jameson? Mm -hmm. It's a good one. And I, I think many of us have fallen victim to it. And it, the XY problem is where you have X problem and you think I could solve X problem by using Y, but I don't know how to do Y. So you go ask a coworker or a friend, how do I do Y? And the coworker says, well, what are you trying to do? And and you say, well, I'm trying to do X. And they go, oh, well, you definitely don't want to do Y. <laughs> go back to X and here's the answer to your X problem. Here's a solution to that. And so many times we just jump straight to Y and we ask that question and then we miss out on getting the even better answer to the original problem that prompted us to go asking in the first place. So to avoid that, what, what kind of things do you should do, you do Jameson? Um, I usually try and give a broader overview of what I'm trying to accomplish before I dive into the details. So I don't know, say you're running into some issue where you ran out of space in, you're like trying to upload a file and uh, that's like the main goal. I'm trying to upload a file with this web framework. And the, the question you have is like, I'm seeing this error because the file when base 64 encoded overflows the limit of characters in a get parameter. How do I increase that limit? And that's like your, Oh yeah. 
that's like classic question or whatever right like i'm asking how do i increase the number of characters i can put in get parameters in an, in an http request but the actual thing you're trying to do is upload a file so the the real answer is like don't use get to <laughs> upload a file use post and if you say i'm trying to upload a file as the broad goal then someone will hopefully nicely point out that there's a better way to accomplish your actual goal instead of telling you like Oh, you can tweak this weird setting in IIS mm -hmm. or whatever, but it's only oh, just, specific to you that should, server. You should gzip the file first and then base64 encode it. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> those will solve the wrong oh, problem. En encode the file into emoji. Then you'll save space in the character count. <laughs> mm -hmm. I got sidetracked by looking at um, emoji compression algorithms. <laughs> Yeah, so so um, that's that's probably the answer to the question you asked earlier about how do you avoid giving too much detail so it just like overwhelms people and you need like a TLDR of here's what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. Okay, now here's the nitty gritty of what I tried and the code and the error I saw and what do I do to fix it. Another thing I've seen from question askers is they don't know enough. They're so new to the technology or field or topic that they can't even formulate good question okay or the answer to their question is like study this thing for six months or something how do you handle that case like as the as the question asker uh yeah as both as the asker or the answer i don't know i saw someone who was pretty new to to software in general come in and ask like how do i communicate information to a to another computer with my javascript or something um and you were like, oh and boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a big it's answer like, to that. <laughs> yeah, the answer is gigantic. How do you how do you go about handling that on both ends? So I think as the asker, oh gosh. I, I think about this a lot actually. Um, like what it would take to answer simple questions for new programmers um, who say things like, you know, uh, what's a function? And it's like, well, in order to explain what a function is, I have to explain what code is. And then I have to explain like, yeah, like the purpose of reusability and parameterizing things and like team dynamics. And it's just like, it's just out of control. So as a question asker- You gotta talk about Dijkstra and GoTo <laughs> and structured programming <laughs> and like- <laughs> oh, Machine man. code. <laughs> yeah. So I think as a question asker, I, what I try to do is put myself in the shoes of the question answerer. And that's fundamentally impossible to do. But what it does is it helps you to think of follow-up questions that they might ask to get clarity on what you're trying to understand. And so when I say, like, how do I communicate information between two computers? My first thought as the question answerer would be, well, what are you trying to accomplish? And what do you have? You know, and then I would go back as the question asker in my head. I'm having this conversation like ping pong in my own brain. And, I'm, and I would say, okay, well, I have a web browser and the other computer is also a web browser. So maybe I should go Google like browser to browser communication and, and then see what comes up, you know, things like that. And, and I think sometimes when you put yourself in the question answerer's shoes, you can think of the follow-up questions that you will get asked. And sometimes they will lead you down a path where you can actually discover the answers yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I think if you're the asker of a really broad question like that, communicating to people that you're not looking for someone to just create on the fly, like the guide to TCP IP and just mm -hmm. type that into their chat client that they're using to talk to you. Um, 
telling them like, hey, I know this is a broad question. I'm looking for resources to where I can go to find more out about it. If you don't have a specific uh, like atomic problem you're asking an answer for, but it's more like, how can you explain this basic concept thing to me? Um, and as an answerer, you, you just have to, I think you just have to kindly communicate to the person that there's a lot of scope to the question that they're asking. And then mm-hmm. you either can give them very broad things that they'll need to follow up with on their own, or you need them to narrow it down a little bit to a more specific thing. Yeah, totally. What about the the issue of you being an expert in a field, making it harder to relate to people who are beginners in the field? The way you think about programming, Dave, is different from someone who is learning about programming for the first time, and you have a lot of vocabulary they don't, and you have a lot of abstraction built up in your head that they don't. So how do you explain things to someone without just saying words that are like technically correct yeah. and incomprehensible to someone that, that right. is not Dave Smith level of developer, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is this is actually really hard to do um, because either you have to make assumptions about the knowledge that the person already has or you have to stop at every other word and ask them, are you familiar with this? And of course, their natural tendency, their ego is going to push them to say, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, I, I already know what that is. <laughs> Who wouldn't know what a pumping lemma is? <laughs> Everyone knows that, you know? I got um, pumping lemmas for days. <laughs> um, so I think... Uh, I think you have, as a question answer in person, that you can do this, but I try to read people's body language, and I try to watch their eyes and see if they're kind of glazing over and looking away, or if they're engaged and, like, eyebrows going up and down, you know, like, I get this, you know? If they're, if if they they're go, crying ah. a lot, like, if tears are just <laughs> running out of their eyes. <laughs> um, so I use that for sure, and then I also stop and ask, like, okay, you know, is that clear? Now, some people, they just will never say no. They'll be like, yep, that's clear. And so you have to find, <laughs> because it's an insult, right? It's like, no, you suck at explaining stuff. Like people don't want to say no. Or it's like, no, I suck at understanding stuff. Yeah, yeah, Like exactly. you're saying words I don't understand. So you are clearly smart. And if I don't understand them, that means I'm dumb. Yeah, exactly. And so you, you have to ask the question in a way that gives them license to honestly answer, <laughs> you know, which can take different forms for different people. But, you know, you can say things like, oh, have you worked with this before? You know? And then they can say, no, I haven't worked with it. I'm familiar with it. You know, they can give they can give an answer. Or you can say things like, um, uh, uh, let's see. I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> I think... I don't know. But I, anyway. I, I kind of think of it like uh, you're doing like a binary search over their understanding. So you might start off way over explaining, but you kind of ask for feedback on them, uh, on, on what they're understanding. And then they they oh man how do i words yeah binary search so you start off way over explaining you figure out that they understand what you're talking about you you drop way back and and use a lot more abstraction you figure out they're confused now and you kind of like narrow in on what their level of understanding is but Mm -hmm. it requires a lot of feedback and interaction back and forth between you and, and the person who's asking the question yeah exactly how do you avoid punishing people who are really good at answering questions by just overflowing them <laughs> with oh, questions. Yeah. So yeah. someone gives you a great answer. It's really helpful. Um, but they have work to do too, right? So right. so there's this instinct to reach out to the person that helped you last time, but also, right. I don't know, you don't want to be annoying to them. You want them to still get their stuff done. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think the onus is actually on the answerer in this situation to make sure that they are not doing unscalable interactions when they answer questions. So if someone comes to them with a question, they should think, who else could benefit from this answer and try to spread this knowledge and bring people in to the conversation and make sure that more people hear the answer so that next time there's a broader base of people that can be drawn upon to answer that same question. So that's one way to do it. That's like a good answer for Stack Overflow. Are you a secret shill? A what? A shill. What is that? Oh, I don't know. You're you're someone whose job it is to you're like a spokesperson trying to convince people to use to, Stack Overflow. <laughs> I get every time someone uses Stack Overflow, I get a penny. Whoa. So yes. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a good deal. Anything else we should chat about with this particular yeah, I've got, question? I've got a couple more small points. And one is that as a question asker, I think it's really important that you hone your sense of do I understand this? I think sometimes I'll get in a situation where I ask a question and while the answer is being given, I think, ah, enlightenment, I get it. And then I go back (laughs) to my desk (laughs) and I'm like, I didn't get any of that, (laughs) you know? And I think it's really important that you practice what it feels like when you've actually achieved understanding of something. And to do that, I think what I do is I say, okay, could I explain this back to someone else after having heard it and run through that mental exercise briefly as you're, you know, right after you get your answer. And if you can't, then ask for follow-up and clarity. I think it might be related to the Dunning-Kruger effect, actually, where you you feel like you've gotten this sense of understanding and that you get it and now you're capable. Mm. But then in reality, you didn't. it didn't quite soak in, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So you kind of test your knowledge with the person who answered it. Yeah, exactly. And then wh- another good tip for question askers is while your answerer is going through there, their quite their answer you don't have to just sit back and be a passive audience you can you can interrupt them and pause and say hey can you clarify this point what is that what is that and, and some people don't work well in a real time you know back and forth fashion so you can make notes while you're listening and just say hey like a mental note write down a word that will remind you to come back to a question and then when they're done give your brain a minute to rutabaga. settle in yeah. <laughs> code word rutabaga yep <laughs> And then when you're done, give your brain a, a moment to process and, and maybe you have to go back to your desk and think for a while and then come back and ask follow-up questions to make sure that you got it. Sure. But, you know, it's asking questions and getting answers in the technical fields. It's hard. Like this is not a a skill that most people are born with. But it's so helpful. If you can oh, do this yeah. well, then then it's you huge. can unstick yourself a lot. And if you can answer questions really well, I think that's the secret to being a 10X engineer. It's not you get 10 more x done you help other people get 10 more x done mm-hmm. i think I, someone's tweeted that probably um i know i didn't yeah, we, invent that but we uh at my company we call that a force you're a force multiplier which means yeah. you're able to take a team and through your help they're able to multiply their efforts more than just what they could produce without you yep yeah this feels very valuable in an engineering team in a, in a software team absolutely absolutely so the last two things I'll say is that as a question answerer, I, I like to follow up at the end of it when I give an answer. I like to ask, did I answer your question? And 
I can usually tell by people's body language, like, eh, you know, like, did I, did I really answer? You know, I can usually tell right away whether I gave them an answer they were looking for. And, no, um, but I'm going to go sit down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and look for that, really, because uh, people will be polite to you. They will be so polite that it will hurt their knowledge and it'll hurt your ability to communicate. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing I would say is... Uh, Whenever anyone asks me a question, I try to ask them the question behind their question before I jump into the answer. Because so many times as a younger, less experienced engineer, I would launch into some monologue to answer their question only to find out, A, they already knew everything I was telling them, and B, I was going in totally the wrong direction. Yep. And so I like to say, what prompted this question? What's your context? Where are you coming from with this? You know, What are you trying to accomplish? And nine times out of 10, that gives some really good context that will help me scope the answer down to what they need to a not waste their time by repeating crap they already know and b by giving them more specific information and sometimes i don't know enough it's like oh i realize based on your context that you already know everything i know and i can't help you (laughs) you know and that's fine but yeah better better to do that than to spend 10 minutes monologuing yeah yeah i love that point about avoiding just holding forth for paragraphs at a time about stuff I I have been on the recipient end of that enough to know that it sucks. And it's usually not helpful. (laughs) Usually my questions aren't answered by like rants on someone's pet peeve topic or whatever about (laughs) how everyone else is a moron and is doing everything wrong and only they know the true answer. So I like like that idea of making sure you're breaking up the answer a little bit and checking in to make sure it's useful and relevant. Yeah. It's like the agile development methodology of question answering. Yeah. You know, to take a one minute sprint. <laughs> yep. Then have a little <laughs> <And> then, retro. <laughs> yeah, <have a> retrospective. <laughs> so let me give you a counter example where this went horribly awry. <laughs> okay. I, I was a, a pretty junior engineer, probably about three years out of college. And we had this really demanding customer at my company. We were uh, doing big contracts and this this one customer was responsible for this big contract and I was working on this new feature for them and it was kind of experimental and I wanted to demo it to him and say, hey, here's an idea. We think it'll be good for you. Come take a look. So I sat down in the lab and I started showing the screen and, and clicking around and whatnot. And at one point, this customer, he just he's, he's very bold, very in your face. He just says to me, why is this useful to me? And because I like to give good answers, (laughs) I didn't just have an answer. I said, well, why don't you tell me where you're coming from? Tell me a little bit about your job. (laughs) And he, he just was so pissed. He was like, he just turned around and started talking to someone else. (laughs) And I was like, there's a time and a place for asking clarifying questions. And like a high profile customer demo is probably not that place. (laughs) (laughs) That's weird, though. I don't know. That it does was weird. Kind of weird. It was weird. Mo- mo- every other time I've asked questions like that, it's turned out better. <laughs> Have we answered this question? Who can know the answer to that question, Jameson? Uh, I wonder if we'll find out next week. And how would people know if they wanted to find out next week? What? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> How how can our listeners continue listening to this show? Aha. Uh-huh. And how can they ask their own questions? 
they can ask their own questions i can't phrase that as a question or i won't i <laughs> can i can do anything i want and i choose not to do that Have they you heard can of our go website? to softskills.audio <laughs> click on the link on there that takes you to a google form fill it out give us as much or as little detail as you want we'll put it in our queue and and our minions will review it our minions are dave and myself that's right um <laughs> If you are enjoying the show, please share it with people. Uh, if you can leave us a review on iTunes, that helps apparently. Also, just, I don't know, share it on whatever podcast app you use. They all have little share buttons. You can usually click on them and they'll pop up in Twitter or Facebook or give you a link you can copy and paste. Please do that. We love it when people listen to this show. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I probably probably every podcast I've ever listened to has said go to our website and do this or that. Do you want to know how many podcast websites I've actually gone to? <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't tell me. <laughs> how many I've have you gone to? I've been to two. Okay. I, I know exactly how many I've been to, which is a sign that people don't do it that much. Well, I have shared a lot worst, of podcasts but... just from apps because it's convenient. Oh, okay. I, I've never done that either. <laughs> oh. Well, step it up, Dave. But seriously, like I'm thinking about all these different podcasts I listen to and I'm like, I have never been to any of their websites. <laughs> yeah. Except ours. But if you go to our website, you can comment on each episode. And some of the conversations have been really cool to see what people add after we're done spewing all of our bogus garbage. Then we get to hear what real smart people have to say about the topic. And it's been really cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. That's been great. All right. I think we're done. Catch okay. you next week. <laughs>